My prayer for Graceview would be that the Lord would let us live in our first love for Him. Wouldn't that be great? I know that in the room right now there are some that you remember a time where you love the Lord maybe more than you do this morning, and that's what that song is about. Lord, take me back to where we started. As we were singing that line, my mind went to the mid-1980s, maybe later 1980s, um, me riding around in a little red Chevette that was my mom's, listening to the Cathedral Quartet on the radio as loud as the little speakers would go, and just crying. <sighs> Coming back from Wednesday night church, and he'd just meet with me right there, and I loved him. I've not always loved him like I did that night and those nights. Lord, give us our first love again, fresh. Let us not go through the motions. If ever there's a day we don't need to go through the motions, today is the day, this text. Before I get into the text, let me reiterate what Brandon mentioned earlier. Next week, we'll not have our live stream. Maybe you'd love to come and just join us, if at all possible. I think maybe the music portion will be streamed, but after that, our speaker, uh, due to his presence in some Muslim countries and for safety there, and other the connections really of the other people that he deals with, uh, we can't really have him, you know, in any way being streamed, and that's uh, by request from Frontline Missions International. So, come next week, one of our missionaries is going to be well, one of our missionary representatives, who's a, a, a director of. A mission board so he's on the farm fields a lot and he's in stateside a lot he stays busy he's a brother in Christ and so come here brother John next week Matthew chapter 26 uh, so we're picking up actually on part two of a message in the upper room the scene I know that most of you were here last week so let's quickly review it's just a few hours before the Lord is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony. We're down to the last few hours. I mean, guys, it's close. Obviously, we've been moving chronologically, but it is really... There was a time it was months away, and then it was weeks away, and then days away. Now it's just hours. They're in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover. Can we review there real quick? Do you remember what the Passover was about? The Passover was the Jews celebrating the greatest deliverance that God had in their history. For 430 years, the nation of Israel, all the Jews were slaves in Africa. The Jews were slaves in Africa, in Egypt. The Egyptians had them in bondage. Didn't look like any hope. Never going to get out. But God, in His mercy and His power, sent them a deliverer named Moses. And God worked through Moses and him and told him what he was going to do. Ultimately, God did it. Pharaoh was never going to let those slaves go, but God worked through Moses through nine different plagues. Pharaoh got really close, but he always backed away. I'm going to let him go. No, I'm not going to let him go. I'll let him go that far, but then he's not. Let just the men go, and he keeps trying to make these deals because his, his land is just crumbling from these nine devastating plagues. But his heart was always hard, and he never would let the children of Israel go, so then God said, this is it. Moses, tomorrow he will let you go. They'll order you to leave their land. You're getting your freedom. Because tonight I'm going to send the death angel, and the death angel will kill all the firstborn in the land. All of the land of Egypt, all the firstborn people, and all the firstborn animals will die. But Moses, you tell your people that if they'll kill a lamb, 
and take the lamb's blood and go in their home after putting the blood of the lamb over the top of the door and on the sides of the door. If they'll go in that house, they'll be safe. And when the death angel comes and kills all the firstborn in Egypt, he'll pass over the houses that have the blood of the lamb. And so here we are in our account. Now, that was 1445 B.C. Here we're now around 30 A.D. So we're about 1,500 years later. And the disciples of Jesus are with him in the city of Jerusalem. Two to three million Jews have crowded into the city. It's not that big of a city, but they are crowding in there. And they're there to celebrate the Passover. And it's a whole feast of unleavened bread. It takes about eight days to do this. But this is the night of the actual Passover for the Lord and his disciples. The last thing by way of review is let's remember what the Lord had done to prepare. He had already made arrangements for a certain room in the city to be used But he sent Peter and John into the city of Jerusalem to go make the preparations for he and the 12. There may have been more, but at least 13 men are going to celebrate Passover together. And so Peter and John go and retrieve the lamb that they would have set aside on Sunday. So they set aside their lamb on Sunday. They go retrieve that lamb, take it into the city. They meet a man. They're told a man will meet them carrying a jar of water. And that happens. They follow him to a house. The master of the house is going to meet them, and they're going to say, the teacher, his time has come, and he wants to use your place to keep the Passover. And so he'll show you an upper room that is furnished and ready. And so Peter and John take the lamb. They go meet that man, meet the other man, and they go inside. And one of the first things they would have to do is to rid the house of all leaven. Nothing, no leaven. Leaven is what you put in the the dough, in the lump of dough before you bake the bread so that it makes it swell and rise. And so this was symbolic of the haste with which the Jews had to leave Egypt. There was no time to allow the bread to swell and rise. But it was also symbolic of ridding the life of corruption. And so Peter and John have to go check this upper room out, make sure there's no leaven in the room. All leaven is removed. Then they would have to bake their own bread. So I would not have been in any use this day, right? Some of you, you'd be very useful that you cook. I don't. Brandon would probably have been one of the two they would have sent into Jerusalem if the Lord had been in our day. I'd been one of those stuck with the Lord. I don't cook. But these guys, they cook unleavened bread. They secure enough wine for the different stages of the Passover meal that is coming. Then They're going to go at the appointed time and take the lamb down to the temple and present it to the priest. And one of the priests will be designated to take their lamb and he'll go and slaughter that lamb. And he'll cast its blood on the altar. But they'll get the remains of that lamb and Peter and John would take it back and they would start roasting that lamb because that's what they're going to eat. And so they've done all these preparations. And so they're ready to eat the Passover meal. And we noticed last week, we we called it, there was a traitor at the Passover. There was a traitor at the Last Supper, and that traitor was Judas. And so they begin this very elaborate meal. I have not studied it fully. There's too many parts to it, and I've not experienced it. Really, I don't know that I need to. I don't know that I need to. I don't need to. We have something better that we're celebrating today. But what they had was a very elaborate meal that had different parts to it. There would be, you're going you're to read two of them in a moment. There's multiple thanksgivings in the Passover. Multiple thanksgivings. There's set aside times where they would eat the bread, the unleavened bread. There are set aside times where they would eat the roasted lamb together. And they had to eat all of it. So come with an appetite. There's to be nothing left that is edible of this lamb. Eat it all. That's why you want a decent sized group eating the lamb. 
There would be set aside times for the four cups of wine that correlated and celebrated the four promises of God to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So there's these four different cups of wine, and all that's going to be orchestrated within this elaborate ceremony. And then there's going to be different times of singing within the group. And they're going to sing a very specific portion of the, of the Old Testament, Psalms 113 to 118, and maybe even Psalm 136. But they would have these certain psalms that they would sing that are part of the hallel, the praise part of the psalms that fit perfectly with the occasion of Passover. So that's the scene. So we've been in, the, in, in it. We've already seen a part where Jesus interrupted the meal and said, one of you will betray me. And eventually he gives a piece of bread to Judas, tells Judas what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Satan enters into Judas. Again, Judas goes to now make the last preparations to get ready to arrest Jesus. He knows the group is going to get Simony, so he's going to go do his part. And now we're left with Jesus and the 11. Would you look with me this morning? Just five verses. Verse 26. So they've already been in the Passover meal, but verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he, pl- he prayed a prayer, a prayer of blessing over it, acknowledging that God, the Father, is the Lord of the universe, the one who waters the ground and provides the grain that grows up for them to be able to make bread. He would have taken the bread and blessed it, asked a prayer of blessing over it, acknowledging God. Again, verse 26. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take Eat. Now pause right there. The word for bread there is the idea of loaf. It's the idea of a single loaf. Different than what we're doing this morning. We all have different pieces. Maybe came from the same, you know, unleavened batch perhaps. But what they would have had, and don't think of a loaf like we think of a loaf of bread. This is unleavened bread and so it's, it's not going to rise very much. And it was probably more of like what I think would be more like pizza dough, right? Except not even that much rising in it. And so this is unleavened bread. And so it was one loaf. And the Lord would have taken it and broken it and broken it and broken it. And and the wording indicates the idea that he would have given to each one of the disciples. And he says, take. So remember this. We're about to see what this represents. Each one has to take the bread. You have to take the bread and what the bread represents. Look again at the end of verse 26. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Take, eat. Take, eat. So they take it. They're to eat it. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, again, acknowledging that God the Father is the Lord of the universe, the one who gives the fruit of the vine. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Before I read verse 28, let me back up and comment quickly on this cup. What was in the cup was wine. It was not grape juice, okay? Understand, we'll be drinking grape juice this morning, which is perfectly fine. But that would have been wine. And I know some teetotalers like myself try to alter and do theological gymnastics with the scriptures. This was wine. Jesus drank wine? Absolutely. But here's what we need to understand. They tell us that this would have been cut and diluted two to three parts of water to the wine. So no one is getting intoxicated at all in this. This is perfectly beautiful and holy what they are doing. Verse 27 again. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this 
is my blood. Drink for this. Drink. Here, drink this. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is my blood of the covenant, which is poured, poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. My blood, which is poured out for many. Why is it poured out for many? For the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 29 Jesus says to the, to the 11, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine because I'm going to die, and that'll be the end of me. That's not what he says. Catch it. There's a key word in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until, until that day when I drink it new with you. Till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Would you notice two things with me this morning? The first one is very brief. We're going to spend most of our time on the second. Number one, Jesus transformed Passover. Jesus transformed the Passover meal. So when the Passover meal and all of a sudden Jesus comes along. Now I want you to back up and would you just read verse 26 and 27. Put yourself in the scene. Because I'm going to propose to you that there's very little in verse 26 and nothing in verse 27 that is new to them. Put yourself in that scene. Act like you're there. You're sitting around the table. Jesus is moderating the Passover meal. Now read verse 27 again. This is just chronological. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. Nothing unusual there. And after blessing it, that's normal. He broke it, normal. He gave it to the disciples, all that's normal. Said, take, normal. Eat, all that's normal. Skip the end of verse 26. Go to verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. If you're taking notes, write the following. The only new and unusual thing in verses 26 and 27 is the last four words of verse 26. The last four words of verse 26 that's the only new thing. He takes this bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, distributes it, take this, eat it. Takes this cup, blesses, blesses it, distributes it among them, tells them to drink it. Nothing unusual there except for the last four words of verse 26. This bread is my body. This bread, this bread is my body. That's brand new. By the way, everything in verse 28 is brand new. For this is my blood of the covenant. Drink this, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'll go ahead and let you guys in on something because it's going to flow right into the next note. So nothing new in verse 26 and 27 except the last four words. But those last four words, coupled with all of verse 28, forever changes Passover. Forever changes Passover. I will not die for what I'm about to tell you, but I'm going to offer it to you, and I'm going to give you a quote from MacArthur that kind of was bold, more bold than I was ready to go. But last week, I struggled with what to call that, that message. I ended up settling, and I don't put a lot into the titles of the message, but I ended up settling on a traitor at the Last Supper, but I almost called it the Last Passover. The Last, but I thought, is it the Last Passover? 
Because what about these Jews? Man, they've been told, you do this in perpetuity for on and on. You are supposed to celebrate this ceremony and what it stands for. So was this the last Passover? In a moment, I'm going to give you a note, but I want you to hear MacArthur's bold statement. Because the more I've thought about it, the more I do agree with it. I'm not Jewish, but I think even if I were Jewish, I think this is proper. He writes, the Passover, the Passover, Jesus was now concluding, that one, he was now concluding with the disciples was the last divinely sanctioned Passover ever to be observed. In other words, that Passover going on in the city of Jerusalem, that one he was concluding with his disciples, that's the last one that has God's sanction on it. And maybe we're thinking, I don't know about that, man. If I was Jewish, I think I would keep on observing the Passover. And some may get really, again, I'm throwing it out there. I'm offering it. wouldn't die for it. And if you get really offended on, you're not going to like what verse 28 talks about, a covenant. Because there's an implied word that we don't see in Matthew. We're going to see in the book of Luke, and we're going to see in 1 Corinthians about this covenant. It's a certain kind of covenant. And so if you're a little real, maybe getting angry with me, what I'm saying and implying about this being the last Passover of all, being transformed into what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, then you're really not going to like verse 28. But I'm going to propose that. Now, write this if you're taking notes. Here's what he's saying. Well, can't Jews just continue to do this? I agree when he writes, to celebrate the Passover is to celebrate the shadow after the reality has already come. Hear that again. To celebrate the Passover, just insist. No, I'm going to keep on celebrating the Passover. Jesus says, now do this. We're going to see these words in a few minutes. Do this, this Passover, do it in remembrance of me. So what I believe is he's transformed the Passover. You say, okay, Jeff, what's the big, this is a big deal. This has been going on for 1,500 years. Three times longer than we've been discovered by Columbus, right? 1492, I guess, is somewhere around that time that he sailed the ocean blue and discovered. And I know others say the Vikings were here before that. But if you go just from Columbus to this time period, do that three times. That's how long these people have been doing this. What kind of person has the audacity in the middle of Passover to sit there and say, oh, by the way, this stands for my body, this stands for my blood, and I'm changing the whole thing. It's about me. Who has the audacity? Who has the authority to do that? Jesus, the Son of God, the one who implemented Passover in the first place. So he has every right to say, yep, what you've been doing here is great, but from now on it's this. Again, back to MacArthur. Let's continue the note. He says to celebrate the Passover, to insist on that, is to celebrate the shadow after the reality has already come. Picture the person, they're away from their family. They're away from their loved one. All they have is a picture. They love that picture. That picture means a lot. But if the family comes and visits or they're able to go home and all of a sudden you don't keep just loving and adoring and worshiping the picture, put the picture away. I have them now. They are more than the picture. That's what he's saying. Let's continue the quote. Celebrating deliverance from Egypt. Can I add these words? Celebrating deliverance from Egypt, as great as that is. And man, that was really great. That is a weak substitute for celebrating deliverance from sin. So over here on one side, we have God delivered the nation of Israel out of 430 years of slavery. That is awesome. That warrants 1,500 years worth of celebration. 
But on the other side, you have the blood of Christ delivers multitudes of all nations from the penalty of sin forever. That warrants celebration forever and ever and for eternity. That is much greater than that. And if you insist only on having this, that's a poor, weak substitute for this. I agree with what he's written. So he writes that in that one meal, Jesus both terminated the old and inaugurated the new. Number two, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Now, admittedly, I'm preaching Matthew here. And as I said last week, I'm never trying to pit one inspired gospel writer against the other. But praise the Lord for the other gospel writers, because between them we know what has happened. Matthew leaves something out. He's perfectly inspired, and this is the Word of God. But we need to get a fuller picture. This account is actually written four times in Scripture. So here's one, what happened in the upper room. There at the the last Passover, the Lord's Supper, the first communion. So we have it here in Matthew. Mark also gives it. But I need you to read with me the other two. We're going to hit it quickly. Not going to take time to read Mark. It's a lot like Matthew. But Luke. Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Excuse me. Spoke for an hour already this morning with the new members class. and So the throat's fine, but it's not where it normally starts. So hopefully it does well. Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> not going to read the whole account, but jump in with me at verse 17. Let's look at this. I want you to particularly going to hear a lot of the same things. There are two things that Luke includes in his account, that I, or why I'm having us read this, and then we're going to look at another one. Luke 22, look at verse 17. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. So far, everything's the same. Saying... This is my body. Everything's the same, but now here it comes. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my body. That's all he says over in Matthew. That's all Matthew records. But Luke says, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, here comes the bigger thing. Do this in remembrance of me. He's telling disciples, do this, like continue to do this in remembrance of me. This is not a one-time, one-night. Hey, just by the way, you don't understand all this means. I'm going to die on a cross tomorrow. So this bread represents my blood tonight. It represents my body tonight. This cup represents my blood tonight. And after tomorrow, you guys go back to the normal way you've been observing Passover. Just giving you a little heads up. No, this is a new thing that is going to be a transition, a transformation taking over. Now, again, back to verse 19 again. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise. So the word likewise means the same thing. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, what's the, that's poured out for you, is the, what's the next word? New covenant. Matthew did not include that word. Some manuscripts in Matthew includes the word new before the word covenant. Should it be there? Should it not be there? It doesn't matter because we know that Jesus actually says it because of what Luke records and what we're getting ready to see in a moment. Verse 20. Likewise, he took the cup. 
after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it's not just the covenant in my blood, it's the new covenant in my blood. So we saw two or three new things there. That, so it's to be done in remembrance, and it's the new covenant that's being implemented. Go if you would, and you may want to put a quick marker here. 1 Corinthians 11, we're not, this is the normal passage that we would preach for communion, the Lord's Supper. But this morning, we're just going to touch on it quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's jump in at verse 23. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church. So we're the Graceview Church. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because they've been abusing how they've been doing the Lord's Supper. He's not with them now. He had been with them, and he had ministered there a year and a half. Now he's somewhere else in the city of Ephesus writing a letter back to Corinth in Greece. Verse 23. For I, this is important. Paul says, for I, Paul, received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. you catch verse 23? Paul is saying, nobody taught me this except Jesus himself. Paul, you're not one of the original 12. You're not even one of the 11 that was in the upper room. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians before Matthew, Mark, Luke or John had been written. This is the first inspired account of what happened in the other room, upper room. And it was the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, that taught it to Paul. He wasn't there, but the Lord says, this is what happened. Paul, take a note. And Paul is saying, Corinthians, I've already told you what happened in the upper room. Now it's recorded, inspired in the early 50s to the first Corinthians, to Corinthians, verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Again, some manuscripts has this idea, my body which is given for you, my body which is broken for you. You've read that in some translations, my body which is broken. Some people say, oh, they have a big problem with the word broken because no bone of Jesus was broken. No bone of a sacrifice to God can be broken in any animal, nor was any bone broken in Christ. True, his bones were not broken, but let's be honest, his body was broken. It was ripped and torn, so the word would fit without doing any theological damage. Now again, back at the end of verse 24, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we know it's an ongoing thing. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Are you guys hearing that? What you've been doing for Passover, remembering God's deliverance from from Egypt, I now want you to do this, and I want you to remember me. Here's what Christ is saying. Guys, fellas, I want you to remember what I will do tonight and tomorrow for you because your eternity is riding on it. Remember my death. That's what he's saying. Now verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 25 again. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, one more verse here, because there's one new thing that I, I think is why we need to read this passage. For as often as you eat this bread, that's why he's saying you don't have to do it only at Passover. You can do it more often than that. Nor does it say how often we are supposed to do this. But here's the command, what God showed Paul. He had already told it, now he's writing it down. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So my point here that we're on number two is this. We're going to start here and we're going to finish. 
What is the purpose of the Passover? We just read in two passages, two purposes. Do it in remembrance of me, moving forward. Always look back and remember what I did when I died for you. And then he's saying, when you do this, as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Write this thought. D.A. Carson writes, what is certain is that Jesus bids us commemorate. Not his birth, nor his life, nor his miracles, but his death. Again, what is clear is that Jesus bids us to commemorate, not his birth. Is it wrong to celebrate Christmas? No, it's not wrong. But don't celebrate Christmas and forget about his birth. We're not told to commemorate his birth or his life per se, or all the various miracles. We are told to commemorate, remember his death. I've said before, usually when a loved one dies, especially if it is some horrific way, we don't want to talk about it. Don't talk about how they died. We can talk about that we miss them, but I don't want to think about Jesus is saying, I want you to remember. Church, grace for you, I want you to remember my death. I want you to remember how I died. So why are we doing this? To remember the death of our Lord and to proclaim our Lord's death. Now, how do we proclaim the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper? How do we proclaim it? I think two ways. Number one, we proclaim it by doing it. Just by doing it, we proclaim the Lord's death. If there's a little child or an unsaved person, there's unsaved people here this morning. They're in the room. There are people in the room. I don't know who they are, but they're in the room right now. They are not a Christian. They've never fully trusted Christ alone as their Savior. Right now, they are yet in their sins. They're on their way to hell. And so if we did nothing more than handed out the elements, and we who know what it stands for partook of the bread and drank the cup, then the little children and unsaved people would probably eventually, you do it enough time, they'd be like, hey, why do y'all do that? What is that? I've seen this on TV. Some churches do it more than another. What is that all about? Oh. This is the body of Christ, and this is the blood of Christ. And this represents his death for us. So we're proclaiming it just by doing it. But also along with it, it means not just by doing it, but as we're doing it. This is just me. I don't want to ever be a church that just kind of tags communion on real quick at the end of a service. Quick, eat that and drink that, and let's pray and go home without any explanation, because I believe we're commanded when you do this to proclaim the Lord's death. Always attach it to what it is pointing back to. That's what we're commanded to do. Look at verse, we're back in Matthew. I think you're already there. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Look again at verse 26 at the end of the verse. And at the beginning of 28, there's a little bitty two-letter word, two word that has caused a lot of problems. Okay, here it goes. Take, eat, this is my body. This is. Here we have. In a moment, I'll join you. In the COVID years, we put them in bags for you so that we're safe. This is my body. This is my blood. What is meant by that? Because I think it's pretty apparent, and this is the stance of Grace View, that the bread is the body of Christ, and the blood, the, the cup is the blood of Christ, means that the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Christ. They represent. 
Remember that Jesus, back in chapter 13 of Matthew, he's given this parable of these weeds, and there's this field, and he says, the field is the world. The field is the world. So is the field the world? You know that it represents the world. Revelation chapter 1, there's these seven golden candlesticks, and the Lord Jesus says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So are, is, am, all the same idea, the be verbs. The, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the vine. So is Jesus literally a vine? No, he's not literally a vine. He's not a physical piece of wooden door. He is just exactly a vine and a door represents what he is and what he does for people. That's why he's saying this bread and this cup represents the Lord. Jeff, why does this matter? Because there's been a lot of struggle and argument and division throughout church history over this little word is. Write this thought and we'll keep moving. I don't want to camp here, but transubstantiation. There's a false doctrine the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Maybe some others, they're the main ones. Transubstantiation. Trans, what's transubstantiation? It's the false doctrine that the bread and the cup, the wine, the grape juice, actually becomes the literal body and blood of Christ once the priest consecrated it. So once it's been consecrated, it has now become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And I say that is not at all what is. Guys, think about that. If that's what was happening, the disciples would have balked. There is no record of anything in, the, in the, any of these accounts where the disciples balked. These are good Jews. They've been taught all their life that you, you don't eat. You, you would never eat another person. That's cannibalism. And you'd never drink blood. But they fully understand. Jesus is picking up what he did and what he said back in John chapter 6 that people had struggled with. What he means is this cup represents my blood. This bread represents my body. Make your way, if you would, Exodus chapter 24. Because we want to track down what the Lord is talking about here when he's talking about his blood. This cup represents the new covenant in his blood. Now, as you're going there, I just want to point out the body of the Lord. Guys, the broken body, the torn, ripped body of the Lord is one of the two things that allows you and I to have access to God the Father. Hebrews chapter nine, chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 says that we have access into the holy places by the blood of Christ, and we go behind the curtain, behind the veil, through the curtain, the new curtain that is the body of Christ, his flesh. So the body of Christ, you have to go through the body of Christ, the torn, ripped, broken body of Christ to have a relationship with God. There was a holy place on earth, but there's a truly holy place in heaven, the throne room of God. You want to have a relationship with God? You have to go through the body of Christ and through the blood of Christ. This is what we're celebrating this morning. Exodus chapter 24, Jesus has said, again, in verse, 22, verse 20 of Luke 22. Everybody, just before we read Exodus, rehear this shortened version of Luke 22, 20. This cup, this cup is the new covenant, new covenant in my blood. Look with me, if you would, verse number 3 of Exodus 24. Here's the scene. The Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, followed by four chapters of rules. Four chapters, rules and laws. God's delivered them out of Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They are receiving the law. Moses is receiving the law. And they've been given four chapters worth of the laws of God. 
Now verse 3. Moses came, first notice this, he told the people. Moses came and he just spoke it. He doesn't have anything written in front of him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Again, you can go back and read chapter 21, 22, 23. Now we're in chapter 24. He spoke to the the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Watch their response. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. All the words. Everything God has said sounds good. It's great that he'll be our God. We just have to do these things. Got it. We're in. Count us in. Now verse number four. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. First, he's just saying it, having talked with God. Now he's actually going to write it down. And the Lord's going to inspire him to write this down. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. It's Mount Sinai. And there's 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel. What's their job? Who offered. They went and offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So there's altars. There's pillars. Moses gave a command. Kill some oxen. So oxen have been killed. And they're going to drain the blood out of these oxen. They're going to be burned on the altar. What are we going to do with this blood? Verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. They caught it. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. So half of the blood is going to be slung against the altar where the animals are burning. But he's kept the other half in basins. Verse 7. You say, Jeff, why are we here? This is the ratification of the old covenant. Because Jesus is talking about the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood. Verse 7, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant. He had just written that. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of, of the people. So he's spoken it once, and they said, yes, everything God says we'll do. Now he reads, reads it to them in the hearing of the people. And again, they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood that was in the basin and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All these words that God has said and your words that you said, we will do this. Jesus is talking about this cup represents the new covenant in his blood. Why do we need a new covenant? If you're taking notes, write the following. A covenant is an agreement. This is a very short definition. A covenant is an agreement between two persons that brings them into a relationship. So there's a covenant. We make covenants today, and God had made covenants before this. God had made a covenant with Noah. God had made a covenant with Abraham. Those are not the old covenant we're talking about. When we're getting ready to use the word old covenant, we're talking about this one right here. The old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant. Yes, I'm calling it the old covenant. So you shouldn't really call it the old. Well, Jesus calls his the new. That implies something is old. All right? All right, now watch. The old covenant, again, don't be offended. I'm just telling you the truth. The old covenant. Let's do this. The old covenant is defective. It's defective. You say, man, I'm never going back to that church again. That preacher saying the Bible's defective. Now, I'm not saying the Bible's defective. I'm saying the covenant, this old covenant is defective. Why? Two reasons and more. 
because it required obedience to God's laws. It's defective. It's not the problem. The problem is it requires obedience to God's laws. And Israel was very disobedient. How long did it take before they were disobedient, by the way? Some of you know, know the book of Exodus. Not very long. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God to ratify. He's up there a little bit longer than they're expecting. And before he comes back down, they're down there dancing naked around a cow, a, a golden calf that they took people's earrings, melted it down, and made a calf. And part of the agreement was you shall have no other gods and you shall make no graven images. And they're doing all the same. They, they break the law. They, yes, everything he says, we'll do it. Tell him we're in. We just want to be our God. We'll do our part. He'll do his part. Yeah, this whole thing is defective because they blew it. They were disobedient. And it applies to us. All of us have been disobedient to the laws of God. So this old covenant. Now, if you want to try to go to heaven by keeping the laws of God, just know there is a curse on you. According to the book of Galatians, if you try to go to heaven, if you choose the law-keeping way, I'm going to keep the law. Boy, I'm going to read the law, and I'm going to keep it all. You better keep it all, because if you don't keep it all, there's a curse on you. Oh, by the way, it's too late. You've already blown it. You cannot go to heaven by keeping the law. We need a different covenant. We need a, a new covenant. That's what we're celebrating this morning is a new covenant. You say, Jeff, you said there were two main reasons why this thing is defective. One, it's, it requires obedience and we're not obedient. And the other is, when we're disobedient, it required animals to be sacrificed. And yes, the animals were sacrificed. So Israel provided the disobedience. And when disobedience was there, animals were sacrificed. But what's, you say, what's the defect? Write this down. The blood of countless. And I use the word countless, not literally. I mean, hypothetically, countless. Literally, as I said last week, I'll offer to you billions, billions of animals were killed in the sacrifices in Israel's 1,500 years of giving of the law from that time at Moses till now when we're reading in Matthew chapter 26. 1,500 years, add up all of those. I believe at least hundreds of millions, if not billions of animals had died. And so that's why I say, yes, this old covenant is defective because it's, it requires our obedience and it required animal sacrifices to be given. But the problem is even countless animal sacrifices can never remove sin. Can never remove sin. They sacrificed animals. Guys, you understand, if there's God and there's us, what separates us from God is our sin. And these animals were sacrificed. And, and the sacrifice of the animals had an appeasing effect to God. It appeased. Death has occurred. And, and, and it has cost something. And it has just kind of the blood of all these animals has kind of temporarily appeased the wrath of God. But there's still not an absolute closeness. No one can go to heaven because of animal sacrifices. And no one in the Old Testament went to heaven. None of them went to heaven when they died. When I die, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm in under the new covenant. My sins are not covered by animals' blood. My sins have been dealt with a whole different way. Look at verse 28. After you back that, go quickly back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. So Jesus offers this better covenant. I want you to catch a word in verse 28. Drink of it, this cup, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And again, the idea is the new covenant, which is poured out. Poured. Hey, guys, listen. In the truest theological sense, I think what this is pointing to is when Jesus had died, his blood 
Remember, there's an earthly temple, and that was only made after, that was a pattern of the heavenly temple. Christ had to take his blood to the heavenly temple, to the true mercy seat of God, and offer his blood. He had to pour his blood out there in heaven as what we're going to read about. An atonement for sin, a full atonement that would put sin in remission and that would allow forgiveness. But notice the word poor. I think he's also pointing to this. He's alluding to all of the tremendous amount of blood loss he's getting ready to lose. If you can trust your phone and the answers you get on the internet, apparently the average man has between 1.2 and 1.5 gallons of blood. Those of you who know the New Testament, I believe what Jesus is also alluding to, this is my, co- my blood of the covenant which is poured out. I think he's alluding to his blood is going to be pouring out on the cross and before. Think of the five times at least. There are others. It's going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about that probably in two or three weeks. It's going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. Blood is, it appears the language, blood starts coming out of him. But particularly a crown of thorns is going to be pressed into his head. And you know how head wounds are. And so blood, I, I have full confidence, blood is just going to be pouring off of the Lord. That bright red, you've seen it, bright red. They're going to plat this down on him and the blood is just going to be pouring off of Christ. And then he's going to be scourged with a whip with nine straps to it and things on the end of that. And he's going to have a bare back and two guys are going to take turns just beating and scourging him. And the flesh is going to fly and the blood is pouring. At the most he'd have is a gallon and a half of this. So he's had this. This is happening. He's already sweat great drops of blood. Then he's going to be put on a cross and he's going to be pierced here and through both feet. And he's going to be going up and down on that, his back against the cross trying to breathe. And the blood is just going to keep pouring. And then after he has died, there's going to be a Roman soldier who's going to put his sword up into him. And John was an eyewitness and said, out came blood and water. Blood and water came flowing. And I don't know a lot. I've got a lot of medical people in here who know a whole lot more than I do. But I've learned this in my trips to the hospice. That as the body starts dying and shutting down, most of the blood is going to start protecting the brain and the core body. And so the blood of Christ, what is left, is being gathered into his core body. And now he's died. And then this, this soldier rips a spear into his side and blood just gushes out. I think the Lord is saying, this what you're about to partake of in just a few minutes represents the blood of Christ. That's the new covenant poured out. For many. If you're taking notes, write the following. Christ's new covenant far exceeds the old covenant because where we disobeyed the laws of God, He kept them perfectly. He kept them perfectly. He never sinned. He always, He, did, he didn't just not obey, He didn't just disobey. He fulfilled all of the law perfectly. He never disobeyed and fulfilled the whole law of God. And where we all die as part of the penalty and the judgment of sin, he died on a cross, not because of any sin of his own, but he died as a substitute. So he totally took our place. He was perfect where we couldn't be, and then he died in our place. His body was broken and crushed and torn apart, and his blood was shed for us as our substitute. Now, here's the key. I have a reference in there. I don't have time to track it down. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the New Testament calls the blood of Christ precious blood. We're not saved and redeemed and, and received salvation because of the blood of bulls and of goats. We're saved and redeemed because of the precious blood of Christ. Why is it precious? It's precious because Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, refers to Jesus' blood as God's blood. His blood is God's blood. That's why it's precious. No one's ever been like him. His covenant is greater. Acts 20, verse 28, talks about the church of God. It's not the church of any preacher. It's not the church of any set of pastoral staff. It's the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. God has purchased the church with his own blood. God's blood, Jesus' blood. Jesus is God. We can put that together. So let's revisit. The Jews are celebrating God's deliverance from the death angel and from slavery that in their mind is owing to the blood of this lamb. But the Lord comes along and says, far greater than that is the deliverance that my death on the cross will provide for you the next day as he's talking to his disciples. Guys, can I word it this way? The blood of Christ that is shed and the death of Christ on the cross, hear me, it not only tells you that God loves you. Somebody may be wondering this morning, maybe somebody right now, you're like, man, this past week I've just been wondering, does God even love me? The shed blood of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross tells you that God loves you, but it's the shed blood of Christ that allows God to love you. It's his blood that allows him to love you. What do I mean? If you'll allow me to get theological one more time, we're back in Matthew 26. Look at verse 28. There's one more phrase I need to hit. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. I'm going to hit that in a moment, the word many. But watch this phrase. Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I grew up always reading and memorizing the King James Version. The King James does not give the word, it's the same idea, it does not give the word for the forgiveness of sins, it gives the idea for the remission of sins. Hang with me. Let's go just a little slower here. Some of you know this, some of you ladies even rehearsed it Tuesday night and Wednesday morning in your, in your Bible studies, what we're about to talk about. But notice, Jesus says, which is poured out, his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The King James says, for the remission of sins. Do you guys know, you want to learn this, do you know what the word remission has to do with? So we have reconciliation is a Bible term for salvation. We have redemption is a Bible term for salvation. We have regeneration is a Bible term for salvation. But now we have this word, of, of, let me get my word, remission. What is Remission. You say remission, that if somebody has cancer and their cancer is in remission, the, the cancer is going away. It is being put away. Guys, what, what the Lord is telling us is the forgiveness that he provides is a forgiveness that is such that is actually removing of the sin. That's important. Why is it important? Now watch. There's this aspect of God that is the holiness of God. We've learned this. We've rehearsed it. 
God is holy, so holy, he cannot tolerate any sin. He can tolerate no sin. No one with any sin will go into heaven. Well, if we're in trouble, we all have sin. But the holiness of God is a real thing. And then there's the justice of God, the justness of God. That not only can't tolerate sin, but it can't just overlook sin. It must punish sin. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. If you're taking notes, write this thought. Because the holiness of God that can't tolerate sin and the justness of God that must punish sin because of that, because his holiness and his justness must be satisfied. They have to be satisfied. So for that reason, the punishment of our sin and the removal of our sin are fundamental to our eternal life. You can't have eternal life, ladies and gentlemen, unless your sins, your sins has to be punished and your sins have to be removed. And when your sins are punished, that satisfies the justice of God. And when your sin is removed, that satisfies the holiness of God. And that's what the Lord is describing. His blood on the cross and his death on the cross accomplishes both the punishment of our sin and the removal of our sin. And here it is again. If there's God and we're over here and our sins have separated us and animal's blood has just temporarily appeased the wrath of God, but we can't go to heaven, Christ comes along and by his shed blood on the cross, he actually removes, he removes the sin. So y'all understand this? When sin is gone, you're able to have a relationship with God. That's the new covenant. It removes the sin. It doesn't cover the sin. It removes the sin. Tell you what, guys, I praise the Lord. We have a new covenant. We have a new covenant that is not reliant on our obedience. It is not reliant on your obedience. It's not reliant on any earthly priests. It's not reliant on any animal sacrifice. Let me say it again. The new covenant that we have, we can have a relationship with God and go live with him forever in heaven because Jesus was punished for our sins and his blood has not only an appeasing aspect to God, it has a cleansing aspect. It removes our sin. That lets us have a relationship with God. And none of that is is reliant upon our obedience. Now, if you hear that and think, none of the new covenant is requiring our obedience and you hear that and think, then I just want to go live in sin, then you don't get the whole thing. Christians hear this, this does not make them want to commit sin. This makes them love the Lord more and want to commit less sin, no sin. One more thing out of verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, for many. What does Jesus mean for many? So I have nothing to write for a moment. Hey guys, the blood of Christ is so powerful that it is fully sufficient to pay for every sin of every person who's ever lived, who is living, or ever will live. Let me say it again. The blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for all the sins, every sin of every person who's ever lived, who is living now anywhere in the world, any person who ever will live, the blood of Christ is sufficient. So then all people, are all people going to heaven? No, the blood of Christ is only effective in paying for the sins. Of, it's sufficient, but it's only effective for paying for the sins of those few people who actually don't just hear that God's son died on a cross and know that he died for sin. It's the people who trust that his death was for them. You catch the difference. 
There are people probably sitting here right now, in their heart, your mind, this is your thinking. Oh, I know Jesus died on the cross, and he died for for the sins of the world. But have you ever had that time where you realize he died for my sins? It is those who realize he died personally for them and for those who see his death as sufficient. That's who end up having their sins forgiven. It's sufficient for everyone. It's effective only for those who by faith hear the promises of God And no, he died for all, yes, but he died for me, and it's sufficient. I don't need to do anything else to add to it. Can I just ask you guys a question? Have you personally ever been to Christ? Have you ever gone to God the Father and confessed your sins and agreed, God, I don't understand it all, but I understand these facts, and God, I'm confessing my sin. And have you ever gone to God and said, based on your promises, I know that Jesus' death was for me, and I receive it, and I receive it as being enough. Have you ever done that? Have have you? Honestly, I'm asking you. I'm asking you watching online. Have you ever seen yourself, as it were, at the foot of the cross as the blood of the Lord Jesus is pouring from his body, and all the handwriting of ordinances that you've broke, the, the tens and tens of thousands of sin that you've ever committed, see them pictured, written down, and the blood of Christ is just washing them all away. There's nothing left. Have you ever had that time in your life where you've gone to the Lord and received as a free gift that free forgiveness that verse 28 talks about. If you have, then you ought to join us in partaking of the Lord's Supper in a moment. If you haven't, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Jesus has done everything that is needed. All that is left, if you've never done that, understand all that is left for you to do is to hear the Word of God, to hear the promises and to act like God is telling the truth. There's all that's left. I'm just going to ask you. you, Maybe someone's sitting here right now. This is your testimony. I don't remember a time ever where I've dealt with God in any way like what you're describing. I've never done this. I've never asked. I've never acknowledged my sins to the Lord. I've never asked the Lord to forgive me. I've never received His forgiveness. I don't even know how to do all of that. I'm going to ask you, do you believe God can lie? Or do you believe that God tells the truth? If you believe God tells the truth, then it's real simple. I'm going to tell you what God says. God says that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God says, Jesus said, all that the Father gives him will come to him. And all that come to him, he will not cast out. So if you're thinking, yeah, but I don't even know. I've I've done some really bad things. I don't know if he'll accept me then you're doubting God's truth. Jesus says, I never cast anyone out if they come to me. God says in Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus is the idea. Lord, save me. I receive your salvation. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The Bible, God's word says, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. The Bible says, so here's the thing. Are you going to like believe God? Like honestly act like he's telling the truth? Here's what the Bible says. If we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever done that? If you have, then you should partake of the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you haven't, what are you waiting on? Quickly, look at verse 30, and then I'm going to finish verse 29. Verse 30. When they had sung in him, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, quoting from D.A. Carson, Carson writes that the hymn normally sung was the last part of the Hallel, the last part of the Psalm 114 to 118, or maybe even Psalm 115 to 118. So they sung a hymn. It could be a long one. But he adds more. Carson writes, it was sung antiphonally. Antiphonally. What does that mean? Go home and let your mind just dwell on this. I don't have time. Boy, I was tempted. Boy, we should go over and look at Psalm 116 and Psalm 115. No, I don't have time. Let this sink in. He writes, it was sung antiphonally. Jesus, as the leader, would sing the lines. And his followers would respond with, hallelujah. You ought to go home and read Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Especially 116 about this trust. Just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and the agony begins. What's Jesus doing in his last moments? Singing praise to God. And singing confidence and trust in the promises of God. Which now takes us back to verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's house. I will not drink, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Write this thought. Verse 29 illustrates at least three things that Jesus is very certain of. He's certain. He knows he's going to die. That is going to happen. He knows he's going to die. Number two, he knows he's going to come back to life. He will rise again. And number three, he knows he will actually enjoy this celebration that we're about to take part in in a fuller way. Jesus knows I will celebrate. Now, you're going to keep doing it for for 2,000 years at least or more without me. You're going to keep doing that, and you're going to keep reflecting upon my, my death, and you're going to proclaim my death until I come. But the time's going to come when the Lord is saying, I will come and I will enjoy This supper, this ceremony, this celebration with all of my fathers, all of my followers in my father's kingdom. So the Lord is certain. He knows he will die, but he knows he's going to rise again. And he knows the future that he will actually come back and enjoy this celebration with all of his fathers. All of his followers. So here I want to conclude where we began, okay? And to do so, I'm going to borrow from Warren Wearsby. It's a long note on your handout. But if I could say, hey, guys, let's take something into this final portion of, of our service today and into this ceremony of the Lord's Supper, where should, where should my headspace be? What should I be thinking about? I think Wearsby is on the spot. He writes the following. Okay, was that my ears or is there something in a speaker right there? Okay. Did this one just wake up? Okay, we might can bump. Am I really loud over here as well as over here? You guys are normal, and I'm really loud over here. So something happened. Uh, that's a lot better than it going out. It's better if we get louder. Hey, write this down. Warren Wearsby gives a great quote. He says, The supper encourages us to look back. The supper encourages us to look back with love and adoration to what he did for us on the cross. If, guys, if you do nothing else, set your heart like, as I do this in a moment, I want to be looking back with love and adoration to what he did for us on the cross and to look forward with hope and anticipation to his coming again. So catch that. 
We look back with love and adoration for what he's already done. We look forward. Jesus, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, as often as you do this, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. So Wiersbe is correct in saying we look forward with hope and anticipation to his coming again. You ought to set in your mind, I want to be doing both of those. I want to look back in love and, and, and appreciation and thanksgiving, and I want to look forward with hope and anticipation of his coming again. But as we're going to finish here in just a moment with three verses in Corinthians, Wiersbe writes, since we must be careful not to come to the Lord's table with known sin in our lives, the, sup the supper should also be an occasion for looking within, examining our hearts, and confessing our sins. So there's a lot in that. Can we have that note and we'll let the folks write that? I think that was on there. Yes, there's a lot of words. Have at it. But this is where our minds want to be. So quickly write that so that we can quickly get our minds fully focused on that. The supper encourages us to look back with love and adoration for what Christ has already done for us on the cross and to look forward with hope and anticipation to his coming again. But since we must be careful not to come to the Lord's table with any known sin in our lives, the supper should also be an occasion for looking within. So look back, look forward, look within, examining our hearts, confessing our sins. As soon as you've written that, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I always like to include this because this is a serious occasion. It's not something to do lighthearted. It's something to do joyfully. But it's not something to do flippantly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 27. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I hope everyone is catching this, everyone paying attention. Verse 27, whoever therefore, because it proclaims the Lord's death, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Don't do that. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord, please no one do this this morning. It would be better not to partake of the cup or the bread than to do verse 27. Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, not other people. Don't be examining anyone else. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who, here's why it's important, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So don't eat and drink judgment. You'll not see it on the screen, but if you're with me in 1 Corinthians, verse, chapter 11, verse 30 says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So in other words, the call is to eat of the Lord's table, to eat the bread and drink the cup, but don't do it in an unworthy manner. And so the last thing I give you this morning is what MacArthur, I always share this, MacArthur writes that in an unworthy manner means to partake of what we're about to do ritualistically. Don't do it ritualistically. You say, what does that mean? Indifferently, flippantly, not really thinking. Please don't do that this morning. And it means, what is in an unworthy manner? It means to do this with a spirit of bitterness inside and a spirit of unforgiveness. Is there within any of us 
a spirit of bitterness, a root of bitterness has gone down in your soul. If you have a bitter spirit this morning, if you have an unforgiving spirit, just like, nope, I'm not, I don't want to get things right. If you have an unforgiving spirit, please don't do this. It means, to partake unworthily means to cling, to partake of these elements that represent the body and blood of Christ while clinging to known sin, just holding on to it with an unrepentant heart. Like, I love my sin. I'm not going to give it up, but I'm still going to do the Lord's Supper because it's embarrassing if somebody sees me not doing it. If you're clinging to known sin, you need to let it go. Let it go. That's the call. If you have unforgiveness, bitterness in your heart, you need to let it go. Really let it go, and God will know your heart. And don't do it ritualistically. And so to that end, we always like to pause. Would you bow your head, close your eyes just for a moment. I want to invite you to allow the Holy Spirit, while you also examine yourself, and just really, you and the Lord both, taking a look, Saying, God, am I harboring any sin? Am I harboring any known sin in my life? Think about your eyes. Anything with your eyes. You're harboring known sin. Here's the beauty. 1 John 1, 9 is still true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you confess? Will you just agree with God? God, I, I looked at that. You know that I did. God, I'm sorry. Sins of the ears, of the mouth. Has your mouth been used to do some sinful things? Sins of the hands, the feet. Maybe you like been somewhere you really shouldn't have been and you knew it and you've not gotten right, that right with the Lord. Take this time to get this right with the Lord. Check your heart. Is there any bitterness, unforgiveness, any grudge, any clinging to known sin? I'll give you a moment to get those things right between you and the Lord. the Corinthian church is to wait upon one another not to rush ahead in partaking of the Lord's Supper so what I want to do this morning is let's just pause I'll lead us in prayer on this first prayer before we partake of the bread that represents the body of Christ would you join me in giving thanks and expressing honor and celebration to the Lord for the body of Christ Let's pray together. I'll give you a moment if you do need to grab that out of your packet. Does anyone else, does anyone here need a packet? We have a few more. Anyone else before we pray for these elements right here? Would you raise your hand if you need this? You want to participate this morning? Anyone else? 
Thank you. All right. Hey, let's heed what Wearsby talks about. Let's look back with love and adoration. Let's look ahead with hope and anticipation. Having looked inward, let's pray. You talk to the Father as I do as well. Father, we come to you because of Christ. Lord, we just want to say thank you for your great plan that included us. God, thank you for Jesus. I don't know how you did it. The one who fills the universe, the creator of everything, became a baby. Lord, you really displayed your power when you allowed the eternal Son of God to become a human being, an embryo. Lord, we acknowledge and we celebrate and we honor that that body grew into a man. And Lord, we acknowledge and celebrate He never sinned. You know that we have all sinned. We're prone to it. We're drawn to it. Lord, we acknowledge that somehow your son who became a man was tempted he was tempted to sin but never sinned Lord by taking this piece of bread this morning you've taught us that it represents his body that was given for us as a sacrifice on the cross pierced beaten slapped his tendons and ligaments and muscles and skin ripped and torn, but no bone broken. He fulfilled all of your plan. He kept your will, all of your laws. He fulfilled them perfectly. He pleased you. And thank you for letting him represent us. He represents us. He's our captain. He's our champion. Thank you for our champion, Jesus. We come through him to you. Lord, we acknowledge that through his body, we get a relationship with you. We get to come to the true holy place through Jesus' body that was torn on the cross. And so, Lord, those of us that are about to participate, we do this saying, thank you. And we do it saying, we celebrate this with you, his death for us. And Lord, we know that this ceremony it's only for Christians. It's only for Christians. Lord, if anyone is about to do this and they're not a Christian, stop them. Help them to hold off, not do it. We acknowledge that this is only for Christians who have actually trusted Jesus' death to count for them. So, Lord, we celebrate him this morning in Christ's name. I'm going to read the verse, Matthew chapter 26. If you'll look this way, Matthew 26, verse number 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body.
I've asked Danny if he would come. I'm not even sure how to turn this on. There it is. Danny's going to lead us in prayer of thanksgiving for the shed blood of Christ this morning. Brother Danny. Father, as we come before you this morning, Mm -hmm. we know that your blood ran red Mm -hmm. so that one day we can be washed in white. Lord, your blood was pure, unstained with sin, as our blood is just full of sin and corruption. And Lord, we just praise you that you took on our corruption, that you became sin for our behalf. Lord, you died so that we can live. Lord, you came here on earth to live with us temporarily so that we can live with you eternally in the Father's house, in the kingdom. Lord, we get worried when we get a little finger prick, when we see blood. It's a little scary. But Lord, you, your blood didn't come out in a finger prick or a little bit. It was poured out. It was gushed out. You bled out so that we can live. Lord, there's no way we can thank you enough for it, humanly speaking. But as much as we can, we do praise you and thank you and acknowledge that our total lives belong to you. You poured out your blood so that we could become your slaves. You redeemed us through your blood. We are your property. You are our God. And so, Lord, as we do celebrate this with you, only by your invitation, we can't come to the table on our own, Lord, but we can, we're here because of your love for us. So we just praise you and thank you for that love, that agape, eternal love, 100% forgiving love. Father, you forget our sins. We remember what you did for us so that you can forget what we've done to you. So, Lord, we just praise you. We celebrate this now at your invitation, at your request, at your command. We praise you and we look back on what you did so that we have total hope in the future and where we're going to spend eternity with you. And we just praise you now. We love you, Father. We love you, Father. Amen. 28 and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins amen verse number 30 says and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives Chris, are we able to sing something this morning? Please stand this morning. This will close the service. Let's sing.
dismissed.